All right, everybody. Issue one, crypto crisis. A lot of crypto news this week. First off, Saturday, Bitcoin plunged almost 20%. Some news reports had it going as low as $43,000 per Bitcoin. I saw $47,000 per Bitcoin. Ethereum was down 10% as well. Some data from CoinGlass actually showed that nearly a billion dollars in cryptocurrencies were liquidated on Saturday, with the bulk being on the Bitfinex exchange. Also on Saturday, there were reports that 196 million, that's a big number, 190, <laughs> $196 million of crypto was stolen from the trading platform of BitMart. About $100 million of that was uh, Ethereum. $96 million of that was from the Binance Smart Chain. The hackers then washed the crypto through the decentralized exchange aggregator known as Lynch and then deposited into a privacy mixer known as Tornado Cash, which supposedly <laughs> makes it harder to track. Okay. Why couple, are you laughing? Well, a couple of things. One, we're an energy show. We're opening up with a crypto uh, article, which is funny. And then it's also funny hearing Chuck talking about Tornado Cash. Like we've got a guy that's usually talking about uh, private equity and public equity, public markets in the M&A space for oil and gas. And now he's kind of devolved to talking about tornado cash. Dude, I'm trying to keep up. I'm trying to keep up. But that wasn't the only thing that went down in crypto this uh, weekend. We had the Celsius network lost about $20 million due to a $120 million hack of the decentralized finance platform BadgerDAO. But the weirdest of all was a $600 million hack of the cryptocurrency platform Poly Networks, where the hacker actually a few days later returned all the money. Hey. Crypto in crisis. What's going on, Colin? Yeah, I mean, look, these stories always get headlines, right? Um, it's nothing new for exchanges to get hacked. And the bad thing about it is that anytime you see a headline, it's like, you know, $150 million of Bitcoin stolen. Um, people think that the Bitcoin network's been hacked. It's not the actual Bitcoin network. It's the exchange itself. And so one of the... Uh, the key phrases that's always done around in the cryptocurrency uh, community is not your keys, not your crypto. So you never want to hold your cryptocurrency on an exchange because the exchange can be hacked and you can lose your money. Um, you always want to have it in a cold storage wallet. So that's important to note. Um, one thing that was interesting about the, uh, the recent hack um, with uh, who was it? Uh, what? I don't even know who this uh, exchange was. Never heard of them before. There's so many, oddball exchanges who was it bitmart yeah, yeah bitmart one thing that is cool is that you know the 100 million plus i think it was 150 million that was stolen they're actually replacing that with their own funds and covering it so they're actually going to restore all the uh crypto holders that lost their money so i thought that was pretty cool you know at least now uh some of these exchanges have integrity back in the day you know the exchanges <laughs> would just rug pull you steal your funds and be like we got hacked and change names just fuck you <laughs> move, yeah, move, exactly. move to the door exactly so at least now we got some ethical uh, exchanges that are willing to reimburse people when they get hacked but in all seriousness this kind of goes back to what we talked about last week and ultimately bitcoin the price is going to be based on acceptance tell me where i'm wrong or right 
with this as a statement. The only way Bitcoin thrives as a de facto world currency, if you will, is if you have exchanges on top of it, because there's not enough energy on the planet to for me to pay my AT&T bill and have it be registered in the Bitcoin uh, blockchain. True yeah. or false? I mean, you're correct, but this <sighs> is where second... Mark that tape, please. This We're is where... This is... <laughs> of course. <laughs> but this is where second layers come into play and a little too deep into the weeds for this show, uh, talking about, you know energy consumed by transactions on the blockchain but maybe sometime we'll record a uh, whole show dedicated to uh second layers on cryptocurrencies like gotcha. the bitcoin lightning network we'll go down that we just taught chuck how to say ethereum properly so we got to take it one step at a time exactly <laughs> baby steps baby steps all right let's get over to some actual energy news we got uh some here we go we haven't, we haven't got to talk Okay, Chuck just straight up cut me off with that video segment. Hey, so I fucking fired. Oh, yeah, that's right. I did <laughs> I did cut you off last week. So um, we got to get better on our timing of our videos. So anyways, uh, Biden rattled his saber by announcing that the U.S. would release 50 million barrels from the SPR. We talked about this, Chuck. You know, it uh, basically came out to about two and a half uh, days of supply for the U.S. So it wasn't that big of a deal, but it grabbed the headlines. And then you had the Omicron uh covid virus hit and so oil plunged down um you know we were talking i think the oil boys video that we posted on twitter actually marked almost exactly the top and um uh, sorry about that we got to reverse the trend and uh figure out what we they can actually do to... dropped their price this week on cameo Did so they? we can go back and <laughs> go back yeah. maybe re maybe record a new one i got an ad from that on cameo <laughs> so despite all of this opec stuck to the plan and agreed agreed to raise output uh, by 400,000 barrels a day. Chuck, I know you've been talking to the uh, supposed OPEC whisperer. Do you have uh, any insight on what that actually means? You know, it was interesting. We grabbed a drink last night and uh, chatted about it. We actually disagree. So you're going to get you're going to oh. get my you're going to get my take on uh, on this. Um, don't forget, Saudi Arabia is fighting a war right now with Yemen. They're skirmishing back and forth. It's actually been called the largest human humanitarian disaster going on on the planet right now. They're skirmishing back and forth. What do the Saudis need to do that? They need weapons. Where do they get weapons? Russia. The United States. Does <laughs> <laughs> the Saudi? I, th I think it could be debated on who they get their weapons. Well, from. they probably buy from both sides, but our <laughs> air-to-air missiles are a lot better. And if you notice, the Biden administration sold them 280 air-to-air -air missiles in early November. And so what does all that mean? You've seen some bits in the press coming out about diplomacy and how it's working. And so at the end of the day, was Saudi Arabia really going to thumb, uh, put their thumb in the whatever? Were they going to show up the United States on this bit? No, not over 400,000 barrels a day. So they stick to the path. Maybe they cost themselves five bucks a barrel in oil. But you know that's should, what's going you know who on. We should actually get the on the show. We should get Jay Fraxen from EFT. For some reason, he's just like the quintessential uh, military dad. Like he just like studying the military. And it'd be interesting to tie in uh, military and warfare into 
the overarching oil trade. Yeah, because there's no doubt we won World War II because uh, the East Texas oil field supplied the U.S. oil. Yeah, no, no question about that. Dude, we got to go into that sometime. That's actually super interesting to layer that over what's happening on a macroeconomic perspective of hey, what's happening with political and um, actual wars that are being fought over in the Middle East as well. That's yeah, I mean, because we not to think about that too much when we're you know just <laughs> drilling wells over here in the United States. Well, you know, it was interesting because the Nazis actually went to Fisher Tropes, which is taking a hydrocarbon and converting it. And they were making their gasoline out of coal at the end of World War II because we had cut off the supply chains of oil. More expensive, less efficient, and they just didn't have it. So that would actually be a good segment. You're invited on anytime you want to talk about it. Uh, but yeah, that's what's going on. Diplomacy says, is working. So that was Jay Fraxon's uh, official invitation. GW Goldman said that. Uh, Where's his? <laughs> he doesn't know if EFT wife likes us enough to let Jay Fraxon on. So we'll <laughs> have to see if we can get him on here or not. But what we got up next? Here we go. The untold story. All right, hold on. I blew it. I blew it. Let's go back. Who's letting Chuck run the controls? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Usually I run the controls so much better. We're going to be able to edit this. This isn't live, is it? Here we go. meeting after this and promote <laughs> chuck and take away some responsibilities cut my pay <laughs> cuts me off plays the wrong segments exactly all right this week commonwealth fusion raised a series b being the second round of 1.8 billion dollars just to repeat wasn't million it was 1.8 billion dollars it was led by tiger management and included all the big hitters on the planet so you had bill gates in it john Doerr, the big Venture capitalist from Rice University. Um, Mark Benioff, Salesforce was in there. George Soros was in there. Probably another dozen VC firms were part of this round. So what in God's name does this company actually do, Colin? Or what does it intend to do? And why is it worthy of $1.8 yeah. I mean, nuclear fusion is a hot topic, right? Um, any nuclear energy is, whether it's fission or uh, fusion. And so fission... You're splitting atoms, fusion, you're combining atoms. And here's the thing with fusion is that if we can crack the code to it, I mean, it is the energy source of the future. You don't need oil and gas. You don't need wind. You don't need solar. Nuclear fusion would take care of all of it. Um, but it's interesting. I saw a VC uh, friend of mine on Twitter the other day. MIT had a recent breakout with the uh, magnet technology that's used in fusion. And he posted about it. I mean, it was positive news and it was something to be optimistic about. And he posted about it and the climate tech world swarmed in on his post and was like, quit promoting this bullshit. You know, nuclear fusion is never going to be a thing. Wind and solar are the future. And so you look at the uh, people that are involved here. You got some big names, big visionary people, you know, people that look towards the future and so it's actually exciting to see people putting their money into deep tech like this because you have to have really patient capital i mean look a series b at what 1.8 billion dollars that's not like, even the valuation yeah that no, is, that's, that's that's the amount that's the of equity money. that's the equity raise that's a big check that's a series b and so you can see how uh it's funny if you look at like um 
if you look at aggregate uh, fundraisings for startups, it's like deep tech really screws up the uh, the the data because you'll have these just massive rounds. Like a Series B in a in a tech startup would be like a $10, 15000000 million dollar uh, check, you know, right. in a digital software. And here you got one point eight billion dollars being poured in. And I mean, it's just super. The the capex involved with this is massive, right? So it requires a ton of capital to carry out, but. I get it. I'm excited about Fusion. Um, I think that it could be viable and it's just going to take a lot of money in R&D. And, you know, you may see a bust here, you know, maybe in five years. Like, oh, you remember when uh, Commonwealth raised, you know, $5 billion and it went bust? And that's just kind of part of the game to make progress. So if you ask John Doerr, who's the greatest venture capitalist of all time, Potentially one of the names he would mention is Burton McMurtry. So Burton McMurtry actually went to Rice University, got a job with Sylvania back in the 50s, went out to Silicon Valley, worked for Sylvania, got a PhD from Stanford while doing that. They had a program that allowed you to do it. He came back to Rice, recruited a lot of folks from Rice out to Silicon Valley, including John Durr. And he was a venture capitalist, TVI. He was the only venture capitalist to give Microsoft any money, just an outstanding track record. One of the things he always said about venture capital is, as scientists, we're really smart. As engineers, we're really good. So the way to look at it is you assume that if you put enough money to it, the technology will work as advertised. The key to it is, is there a market there? that will actually purchase the products that you make as advertised. And I think if we go down the path of, of nuclear fusion, like you talk, there's a big market. I mean, yeah. people want energy without hydrocarbons. That's actually without really hydrocarbons. So I recorded a podcast with a geothermal company this week. Uh, their name's uh, Criterion. And I brought that up because the problem that you have with geothermal is that to get to deeper depths with hotter temperatures, we need advanced uh, technology, drilling technology. And so you have people that are looking at drilling with, you know, millimeter waves and all this crazy shit. But the problem that I see with the commer commercialization of tech in geothermal is that in oil and gas, you could spend all this money in R&D on a, a downhole tool. And if it worked, you had a large market to grow right. into and monetize that tool. Geothermal the company drills two or three wells a year. They're not drilling hundreds. And so you don't have that market to grow into, which um, is just an issue, right? And so you want to be able to have a market that you can actually grow into. It's not so much about getting tech to work and if nuclear fusion proves to be viable, there's, I mean, it'll power the world, right? There are seven to 8 billion people that are probably pretty interested. In so that, you so. brought up John Dewar. All right. I wrote a, hey, get your okay. finger out. You're not, you're okay, not transitioning. Fine. You're going to cut me off again here. All right. John Dewar. But we do have a clip. We have it. a clip. Okay. All right. I'll play the clip. All right. God. Chuck's like chomping at the bit for me to play this clip. I love this clip. <laughs> the untold story. All right. So our segue from John Dewar, the untold story of Terra Alliance. So I heard this story. Uh, one of the partners at Altera uh, Capital actually brought it up. And it's crazy. No one knows the story about Altera, or I mean by uh, Terra Alliance. But Terra Alliance was uh, founded by this guy, Erlen Olson, spent 14 years at NASA JPL um, developing this technology. And uh, the technology, what they were trying to do was they were trying to locate subsurface water. 
and they got frustrated because they kept running into oil fields and they didn't know shit about oil. So like they weren't thinking about it, but they realized that, Hey, these oil fields that we're discovering don't have pump jacks. And so Olson starts having this realization like, Hey, I can go study the oil and gas industry. I can create these maps and we're just going to go drill for the oil ourselves. So, uh, he goes and raises $45 million for Goldman and, uh, Kleiner Perkins, which is John Dewar's firm. And all in all, they go drill some wells and, you know, they drill in Oklahoma and Alberta. So you have a pretty good chance of <laughs> hitting oil, regardless if your technology is good or not. Right. But that sets the stage. They go and raise half a billion dollars uh, to do these big projects. And, you know, they had some good, uh, you know, he, he Goldman introduces them to uh, Newfield's founder, Joe Foster. And, you know, Joe Foster's an oil man. He's uh, really just he's in the game. He knows what he's talking about. He sits down with Olson, hears about the technology, and he's like, oh, shit, this sounds legit. I think it's viable. So Foster actually joins their board. So this guy had really, you know, Olson had really smart people around him. But here's my favorite part of the story. He was buying the satellite data, and he wanted to stop using the satellite data. He wanted to create his own map, so he needed his own survey equipment. So he goes and buys these two surplus uh, Soviet fighter jets here um, for $22 million dollars. And someone on Twitter asked, they're like, why would he buy fighter jets instead of Cessnas? I'm like, look at these. They're fucking sweet. Like, why did you buy <laughs> these instead of Cessna planes? And so anyways, long story short, uh, they were never able to find oil, kept drilling dry wells. There was some fraud involved. They run Olsen out. John Dewar uh, gets more involved and tries to salvage the company. They raise a little bit more money in uh, 2009. And finally, the company folds. There's lawsuits going everywhere. But what's crazy to me about this story is that it's just been scrubbed off the Internet. Like you didn't even know about this. Yeah, I didn't know. You about didn't know it. about this. Someone yeah. that was like, I mean, you were deal guy in yeah. that era, right? And you didn't know about this. And it's just crazy. Like they've scrubbed it from the internet. And someone actually messaged me on Twitter and said, Hey, I was actually involved, lost uh lost some money with them. And it was such a black eye and embarrassment for Goldman that they scrubbed all media, all content around it. He's like, I wouldn't be surprised if your Twitter thread gets taken down. So um really interesting. You know, you look at John Dewar, obviously, he's probably learned some lessons from that, but he's still putting in some big checks into other ambitious energy projects like nuclear fusion. So um, that's a, that is a crazy story. I've never heard anything about it. Um, you know, Joe Foster at Newfield, the founding story there is because Joe Foster had a career at Teneco. It was very prominent. He gets, I believe it was Texas Teachers to back him on an offshore company. And he drills 11 straight dry holes <laughs> offshore, no, no doubt. Uh, Texas Teachers comes back, gives him some more money. The 12th well is what hit. It was a huge field that made the company uh, and the like. But literally, probably there's one person on the planet at that time that could be given the rope to drill 11 straight dry, well, dry holes. And it was Foster. There is a uh, famous ball cutter. I can't remember his nickname. So don't hold me to this, but it's something along the lines of like dry hole Willie or something right. like that back in the day. And that's what he was known for was just drilling dry holes. And then he hit one and it made him the wealthiest man in the world at the time. So all you need is that I just need one. Yeah, we're not trying to build a consensus here. We're just <laughs> trying to find one. All right, let's get into our next segment. We got some uh, action happening over in Europe. All right, Chuck, go ahead and play that clip. 
All right. So the European energy crisis seems to be as bad as we thought it was going to be just this week. Azumura's the largest. I don't know if I'm saying that, that right. That's why is I that made sp- you read the segment that, instead Spanish? of me. <laughs> the largest fertilizer producer in it's Romania. Romanian. Okay. What do they speak in R- Romania? Is it Romanian? <laughs> <laughs> We're about to look stupid on the show. <laughs> we stick What's to energy. <laughs> so anyways, largest fertilizer producer in Romania announced it was halting its output due to high natural gas prices. At the same time, Sweden blocked Norway from using its electrical grid. The Nordic pools of Baltic and Finland hit their second highest power prices of all time. Oil burning generation is surging. Dude, Europe is in turmoil right now. I saw a chart the other day of, I think it was ammonium nitrate, um, just skyrocketing. And so people don't see the second order effects if natural gas is skyrocketing. Now you're going to have food shortages because you don't have the fertilizer to be able to produce it. So you're starting to see, I think, kind of parts of the system start to break over there in Europe. So when you were in New Mexico giving the speech and Dan Pickering sat in for you, we talked about this. And the second level effect we talked about that day was, okay, what happens? Do people die? It's too cold or people freezing. And Dan goes, no, that's not going to happen. Governments are going to make tough choices. They're going to make sure that everyone's home's heated and that doesn't happen. But the way they do that is they cut off industry. So we're seeing it right now. Fertilizer plants going to stop running. And the second level effect there, you said food. It's also just GDP. It's the economy. Uh, Dan said, I believe that he thought this took us from a chance of kind of one to two on a scale of one to 10, having a recession to maybe five to six. So we're starting to see this unfold exactly like Dan said. And the thing we need to keep the eye on here is exactly what happens to the economy over in Europe, because it's not insignificant if Europe catches the flu. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think that what's kind of disappointing someone brought this up at our new wave event is that the narrative hasn't shifted much despite the evidence of what happens with a lack of energy right and so despite everything that's happening in europe and maybe this is just because it's not happening as much in the united states right now but you see what's happening in europe and you think oh hey look we need to make sure that society has sufficient energy to operate but that's still not still not the case right i mean people are still um demonizing oil and gas and don't realize that all energies needed right now. I mean, put it another way. How in God's name do we lose this PR battle? <laughs> I mean, right. We're heating people. We're keeping yeah. them alive. Yeah. Economic growth. How are we losing that? But we really are. We're going to be demonized about it. Something tells me that something related to this may pop up in the finger of the week this week. Yeah, so. we, uh, we got one more segment before our finger of the week. Let's go to this real quick. This is our unappreciated story of the week. So, Colin, I think it's appropriate that we talk about this story today, Pearl Harbor Day. Um, Bob Dole passed away at age 98. And for those of you under 50 who don't even know who Bob Dole was, Bob epitomized the greatest generation. The greatest generation fought through the Great Depression, took down the Nazis and the Japanese to keep the world safe for a democracy. Bob, as a young young man, enlisted in the military, 
towards the end of the war got shot up so bad that he was literally paralyzed from the neck down for a year. It uh, destroyed his shoulder that to the day he died, he wasn't able to properly use. Um, but he remembered one thing that his doctor said when he was in the hospital recovering from that. His doctor said, son, you're lucky to be alive. And so Bob Dole actually went out and lived a life that anyone could be proud of. He gave service to the United States in various political positions, ultimately culminating in he was a longtime Senate majority and minority leader. Um, he was the Republican nominee for president in 1996. He was a fierce partisan. I mean, just a rampant partisan, but only on the Senate floor. Outside the Senate floor, he was friends with folks from other sides of the aisle. So I didn't always agree with him politically. I think he was soft on some various things, but just a true gentleman and a lesson for our kids. I mean, my daughter, Kelly, who I love to death, almost went into mourning because roadblocks was down for two weeks. And this guy went into battle in Europe to save the world back in, uh, in uh, uh, his, when he was 18, 19 years old. So I think we can all take a lesson uh, from Bob Dole and, and look him up, read a little bit about him, because truly a, a, a great American and someone that ought to be celebrated. Absolutely. Well said. And so let's go from respecting one politician <laughs> to shitting on another with this week's finger of the week. All right, Chuck. And then, okay, now this is maybe the greatest string of victory since De La Salle High School won 151 consecutive games in California high school football. That was literally a 12-year streak of uh, being undefeated. So soon, for the third soon. week in a row, our finger of the week, Senator Elizabeth Warren. We may have to pivot and change the section from finger of the week to something around Elizabeth Warren. Like she's just the reigning champ in three weeks in a row. Let's just do a People special are gonna listen to this and be like, man, y'all just need new material, but she just keeps <laughs> setting the bar higher and higher week after week. And you kind of have to respect it. What did she do this week? So this week it was released. So this actually, these letters were sent probably a few days before Thanksgiving. She wrote letters to each of the leaders of the major oil and gas companies, including our buddy Toby Rice, um, demanding to basically making the claim that higher natural gas prices are bad. Okay, agree with you there. But the reason they're higher is because of corporate greed and because U.S. oil and gas producers have been exporting natural gas. If only it stayed here, it would be cheaper. Okay, so a couple things here. You know, I got in the oil business around 2009, 2010, and natural gas prices ever since then have been rock bottom. Where the fuck have these natural gas companies been with their greed when you have sub $2 gas? You know, it makes no sense. How come just all of a sudden it's greed for them to uh, be turning a profit? And I think we also need to distinguish what's the difference between greed 
in making a profit as a business. Like that is the entire point of running a business. And just because you have a profit doesn't mean that it's greed. And if she thinks that oil and gas companies are so profitable, she should fucking go start one. And then when she realizes that the margins are, <laughs> you know, just piss poor, then she can really see how this stuff works. But this is like one, I believe that, you know, people that run businesses, manage businesses, they should be the ones that run for politics because they actually understand how the world works. You get someone like Warren in here that just has no understanding of business, like no understanding. She's just like, oh, nat gas price is high, greed's high, it's big bad oil and gas companies. And it's just getting to the point where it's fucking stupid that we even have to talk about this. Like we're dumbing ourselves down <laughs> to talk about this. Well, the thing I like is she actually misspelled Exxon Mobil. She put an E on the end. Oh, so, Exxon Mobile. <laughs> Exxon Mobile. And they're and they're green. But you know, this is this is what I find interesting. I sent a tweet out, maybe call it two weeks ago, got a lot of likes, where basically I said, okay, if corporations raise prices to ma to to maximize profits. What's it called when governments raise more in the way of taxes? Is that greedy too? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you never hear about the taxes involved with gasoline prices. Like, why don't they talk about that? Oh, yeah. I think every oil and gas or every uh, gas station, the receipt ought to say your gasoline costs 10 bucks and $4.87 of it were taxes at the state and federal level. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah, think that, sure. that should be broken out. Just some clarity and transparency in that yeah. for sure. Yeah. So, hey, maybe next week, like I I thought last week, surely Elizabeth Warren, Warren couldn't be the finger of the week <laughs> next week. What can she do to Now I'm back herself? to thinking that, but I'd be ignorant to think that there's not a possibility that she could be finger of the week next week. So hopefully someone else does something uh, something stupid that we don't agree with. And Senator can, Warren. We need to get a belt for her. We do, yeah, like the energy, energy yeah. tech night belt. <laughs> She's a championship of, belt. Yeah, no, I think I think we're calling on Senator Warren to do the most hideous, vile, stupidest thing possible to win next week, or somebody else be an idiot too. Yeah. All right, guys. So enough. what are you doing tonight? Uh, so we're heading to Pittsburgh. If you're watching tomorrow night, we are doing the premiere of our documentary, uh, Shale A New Hope. Uh, followed by a live AMA with uh, Toby Rice, CEO of EQT, and Larry Kane, uh, who the documentary is based around Larry Kane, uh, third, fourth generation dairy farmer, amazing guy. So check that out. It's free to watch. You just got to register on digitalwildcatters.com. Uh, what time is that tomorrow? Is that 8.30? Tim, do you know? Mac, you know? Uh, I, think it's I think something around 8.30. I think it's at 8.30 Central. It's like 6.30 Eastern? Yeah. So... 7.30. Okay, 7.30. 7.30 Central. That's what they're telling me. Fuck if I know. Check our website. <laughs> You're just it's, the CEO. Giving away an Xbox, dude. It's on there. Oh, yeah. We're giving away an Xbox, too. So you just have to register and be in attendance on the premiere. And we'll be giving away an Xbox just in time for Christmas. Hope to see you guys there. If not, we'll catch you next week on BDE.